Net. Good morning, and welcome to The Light, 88.7 FM Bible Live, a live radio call-in with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina, and for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question for Dr. Brogy, you may call 525-1859, or on your Altel cellular phone, star 887. If you're calling outside our immediate area, call toll-free, 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line, and as always, we welcome questions. If you're new for the first time listening to 88.7 FM, we come on Tuesdays at 11 and we take people's questions. You can call us directly here in the studio at 525-1859, 843-525-1859, or you can use our toll-free number. We have a lot of people who listen in other parts of the country via the internet. If you want to use that, it's 877, the call letters, W-A-G-P, followed by 980. Uh, or you can email us here directly into the studio. The email address is tbl for the Bible line, tbl at net. Uh, When you call, you can remain anonymous and simply dictate your question, or if you want to go on the air live, we're happy to receive it that way as well. Rick, as always, it's great to be here for the Bible Line, and it's a pleasure to be able to take people's questions, and we'll do the best we can by God's grace to respond to questions as they come in today. Indeed, Pastor, and uh, we already have a live caller standing by, so let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible Line. Hi. I have a question from Ephesians four, eight through ten. Okay. And I have um specifically in verse eight where he led captive a host of captives. Yes. Also at the end of verse nine, into the lower parts of the earth. Okay, let me respond to it. Is that, is that that's your question? Yes, sir. All right, good. Um, When you come to chapter 4 of Ephesians, you turn a corner. Chapters 1 through 3 deal with what you believe. Chapters 4 through 6, how you behave. And so 4.1 opens with the words, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There's one body, one Spirit, just as you were also called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. What a tremendous, tremendous statement and declaration of faith that Paul gives here for us as believers. But to each one, he says, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Uh, Interestingly, in the New Testament, when you think about spiritual gifts, most people say, well, that's a ministry of the Holy Spirit. Well, actually, in God's Word, each member of the Trinity is credited with the giving of gifts. In Romans um, chapter 12, God the Father is credited with the giving of gifts. In uh, 
1 Corinthians 12 through 14, God the Holy Spirit is credited with the giving of gifts. But here, in this portion of Scripture, Christ is the one who is credited with the giving of gifts. When he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Uh, So, of course, Jesus made a very clear point that he would ascend to the Father, and they would have to wait for the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit came, uh, he would not only give of himself, but he would give each believer a function within the body of Christ, an enablement. We call it a spiritual gift. There are 20 that are listed in the New Testament. We're doing a series right now of, you're listening for the first time on Wednesday nights on the subject of spiritual gifts. We've just cracked the door and every week stands on its own. So you can come any week you want and benefit. But we've noticed that there are 20 gifts given in the New Testament. And again, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all involved, which is what you'd expect. And the word gift means charisma. It's a grace gift. And so not just do clergy have gifts, but God has given all of his church gifts. And he quotes here uh, Psalm 68.18 with a few tweaks to it. He's quoting from the Septuagint. And uh, But if you go back, the words are very similar. Sometimes when you read a New Testament quote, it will read just a little bit differently than if you go into the Psalms or Isaiah, whatever prophet he might be quoting or whatever book of the Bible, and it will read just a little bit differently. That's because, as you know, many of you, that by the time... Uh, the New Testament was written, most Jews had lost their ability to read Hebrew, and so they read the Septuagint. Just like most people listening to me now don't read the Greek New Testament, they read their English Bibles. And when you go from Greek to any receptor languages, the words change a little bit, but it's the same thing. But the essence of the psalm is that Uh, is that a military victor has the right to give gifts to those who are identified with him. And so he uses a very common um, uh, picture that the first century church would have been familiar with. And Christ having, you know, captivated sinful people by redeeming them with his own blood, he's the victor. He's victorious. And so he gives gifts to men. Now, the... He says here in verses 9, nine through 11, which kind of serve on a, a commentary here in terms of he ascended and he gave gifts to men. Paul comments on these words, and uh, it's interesting. It says um, that he led captive a host of captives and gave gifts to men. I believe this is what happened, putting Scripture together with Scripture, that at the ascension of Christ, the Lord Jesus emptied out paradise. Uh, In the Old Testament, when a person died, he went to a place called Sheol, and there were two compartments in Sheol. There's righteous Sheol that was called paradise, or sometimes the metaphor, Abraham's bosom. Uh, Then there's unrighteous Sheol, which is usually translated uh, in the King James as Hades to distinguish it from righteous Sheol. But the word Sheol, it just means the place of the grave. And that's what the Hebrew word is. It's Sheol. Uh, The Greek word is Hades. But the King James, and I think helpfully, to distinguish righteous Sheol from unrighteous Sheol, instead of translating Sheol all the time and letting the the reader figure out which compartment he's referring to, they translate unrighteous Sheol as Hades. So when a man died in the Old Testament age, uh, absent from the body, present in paradise, uh, or in Abraham's bosom, the place where believers went, uh, absent from the body, if you're an unbeliever, present in Hades. In fact, Jesus tells a parable in Luke 16, where a rich man dies and he goes to 
Sheol, we would say in Hebrew, or Hades, we would say in Greek. And he didn't go to righteous Sheol, he went to unrighteous Sheol, and it's a place of torment and agony, where Lazarus is a believer, and he goes to Abraham's bosom, or what is also called paradise. And of course, uh, Jesus said there's a great chasm fixed between the two, uh, that people on one side cannot cross over to the other. In either case, um, at the ascension, Jesus emptied out righteous Sheol or righteous paradise. The confusion that comes to some people, though if you read scripture carefully, it doesn't have to be confusing, is that heaven is also called today paradise. And so, for instance, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, Paul has a, a vision And he said, it was so real, I don't know if it was a vision or if I was literally there. Um, He says, I know a man, he's speaking of himself, and Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body, I do not know, or out of the body, I do not know, God knows, such a man was caught up to the third heaven. And I know how such a man, um, whether in the body or apart from the body, I don't know, God knows, I know how he was caught up into paradise, paradisus and heard inexpressible words, which a man is not permitted to speak. And so he speaks of the third heaven, what today we call also in the Revelation, the New Jerusalem. And it's the place where a person goes to be with the Lord today. So paradise continues, but in a different place. And uh, Jesus empties out Old Testament paradise, and he brings them to the New Jerusalem or New Testament paradise. Old Testament Sheol, in terms of Hades, the unrighteous section, continues to this day. And so when a man dies, he goes to unrighteous Sheol. And it will continue, but in a different place in the end of time. At the end of time, when every T has been crossed and every I has been dotted, the sea will give up the dead that were in it. The grave will give up the dead that are in them. And death and Sheol, or Hades, were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not writ- found written in the book of life, he was thrown, cast into the lake of fire. So none of this was permissible in terms of a believer going to New Testament paradise until Jesus had literally died on the cross with his own blood made in atonement for sin and cleansed the heavenly tabernacle. And when all that was done, then it was prepared for uh, those believers who had gone to Old Testament paradise to go on into New Testament paradise. So today we can just say absent from the body, present with the Lord, present in paradise, present in the New Jerusalem. So this expression, he ascended, what does it mean? Except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is himself also who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So he leads hosts, uh, a captive, a host of captives, but to do that, he has to descend to the place of the grave. Uh, people say, where's hell? Is it up or down? It's down. <laughs> uh, physically, literally, it's down. Where? I don't know. I don't know if it's in the center of the earth, or, but it's down, and it's the place of the grave. And so there is a place, a real place, that God knows precisely where it is, and we can speculate, but it appears to be down and in, in the earth. Uh, in the lower parts of the earth, and um, exactly where, I don't know, but it's in the earth. And one section continues to this day. Someday it will be emptied out at the end of the millennial reign, but one section was emptied out. And so the Lord Jesus descended. He 
then took those captives and ascended with them to heaven and uh, that God might fill all things. So I know it's a little complicated, but that's kind of a brief answer. You might want to listen to my message on Ephesians 4, and um, I go through a lot more detail, a lot more text, but we're limited on how far we can go in the Bible line. Let's go to the next question. They're stacking up. Indeed. We've got another live caller standing by. Let's go to them. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Thank you so much. Uh, Pastor Carl, would you discuss forgiveness when... The other person is, you know, unrepentant. Uh, a long period of time or a year has passed. They're still unrepentant. Uh, show no signs of recognizing that there, that there, there is a sin or a transgression. But I don't want to hold on to unforgiveness. I'm just not sure what it's supposed to look like. Uh, you know, is there a relationship? Um, and I keep going back to the fact that God has forgiveness for us but only when we go to him in repentance. And so I'm not sure quite what to do. That's a great question. I really appreciate it. Um, A couple broader questions you have to ask. Are we dealing with a believer or an unbeliever? They would claim to be a believer. Okay, so let's let's deal with it on that that level. Um, In 1 Corinthians, Paul deals with people who are rebels of sorts, but who claim to um, know Christ. And so there are some parameters that God gives. Now, let me just say, first of all, we have to forgive. Whether a person, um, you know, is coming to you in absolute humility and a contrite heart, whether they do that or not, we still have to forgive. That That's our responsibility. And Jesus, of course, in response to a question that Peter asked, you know, how many times should I forgive my brother? Up to seven times. And of course, the Lord says, no, up to 70 times seven. And then he goes on and he, he tells a parable to drive home the point of a man who began to settle some debts and a, one came to the king and he owed him 10,000 talents. That's that's about, oh, $10 million in today's uh, economy. It's an extraordinary amount of money. But he didn't have the means to repay, if you remember. And so the Lord, his king, commanded him to be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had until repayment be made. But he fell, of course, on his face and he prostrated himself before him saying, you know, have patience with me, be merciful. And the king, of course, felt compassion. He released him. He forgave the debt entirely. And he went home free. He goes home and he has someone who works for him. And he doesn't owe him, as he owed his master, $10 million. He owed him 100 denarii. That's about a day's wage. And um, he said, pay up. And his servant fell down on his face and entreated and said, oh, please be patient with me. You know, uh, have mercy on me. But um, he didn't. And if you remember, he, he had him uh, thrown into the prison. And, of course, his master finds out. He says, you wicked slave, I forgave you all the debt that when you entreated me, should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave, even as I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that he owed. So shall my heavenly Father also do to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. 
So when you think about forgiveness, there's there's two broad fields in terms of believer, unbeliever, as it relates to us and as it relates to them. Let me first deal as it relates to us. On the one hand, it is given as a mark of conversion in the New Testament, that if a person is genuinely saved, that they will ultimately have a forgiving heart. And that's what this parable teaches. And so Jesus, who describes the man who is unwilling to forgive his servant of a hundred denarii, um, describes him in essence as a lost man, as an unbeliever. But of course, the illustration he's using is powerful. When we think about what God has forgiven us of, then we need to be willing to forgive someone else. I had a couple in my office many, many years ago, and the only way they agreed to come in for counseling is if they didn't have to look at each other. I said, well, I can accommodate. So they came in and I literally set the chairs back to back where they didn't have to look at each other. And I read this parable to them and I said, this is what I want you to do. I said, I gave them each an eight and a half by 11 uh, piece of sheet of a writing tablet. And I said, I want you to write down everything and anything that you can think of that God has ever personally forgiven you of. I said, now, look, you came to me for help today. You're going to have to follow some of my instructions. You're willing to do that. Okay, we're willing to do that. So they wrote it down. I said, I'll be back in about 25 minutes. And I came back about 25 minutes later, and they had like three or four sheets each filled. Then I said, now, I want you to write down what it is that your husband, your wife has done that has made you so angry, so bitter. And they both wrote down like two or three things each. And then we looked at this parable. I said, here's the point. God could forgive you of a $20 million debt. Can you not forgive your spouse of a $100 debt? That, that's the picture here. So on the one hand, it is a mark of conversion. On the other hand, it is very possible for a true believer to withhold forgiveness. If it were not possible, then we wouldn't have exhortations written to save people of their need to forgive. So for instance, in Ephesians 4 and verse 32, he says, and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other. How? Just as God in Christ Jesus forgave you. That's a command. He says, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander be put away from you. How is that going to happen? Well, it has to happen by being replaced with kindness. And the only way kindness can replace bitterness and anger and unforgiveness, and which is the root of all those things, is a willing, tender heart to forgive just like God forgave me. And so sometimes we just have to step back and say, well, what has God forgiven me of? And we start pondering and meditating on the, the multi-million dollar debt that God has forgiven us of, then we need to let go of these 50 cent, $100 debts that people have with us. So that's the starting point. Now, that's the broader thing. Let's, let's put it now on the person. That's us. Let's put it now on the person that we're dealing with. Um, if you're dealing with an unbeliever, again, you have to forgive him. It's done. It's forgiven. Doesn't mean that you have to like them. There's some unfor- there's some lost people I don't like. I, I you know I forgive them, but I don't like them. I wouldn't want to go on vacation with them. You know, um, I love them, but I don't necessarily like them in terms of the way they are. Um, but again, if my perspective is right, I will have a heart of compassion, and in my mind and heart, I'll reason there go I. But by God's grace and mercy that he delivered me and changed me and freed me. When you're dealing with, um, uh, so again, I, I say that to say that there are sometimes people that you deal with, 
uh, lost people that you deal with that you can pray for, but you don't necessarily have to have a relationship with them. In fact, it might be detrimental to have a, a relationship with them. When you're dealing with a believer, uh, you have to forgive them whether they repent or not. But sometimes there are parameters that God gives in terms of how you deal with that believer. For instance, the passage I, I was going to read a moment ago, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he said, I wrote to you in my letter, uh, I wrote to you in my letter um, not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of the world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters. For then you would have to go out of the world. But I actually wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he should be an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or reviler or a drunkard or a swindler. So he's not saying, listen, don't have any kind of relationships with lost people. That's what uh, sometimes Christians do in separating themselves from sin. They separate themselves from the sinner. And those sinful people, some of whom we may not like because of the way they've treated us, we still need to have compassion upon them and forgiveness towards them and hopefully a witness towards them so that they can be delivered from their lifestyle, from their slavery of sin. But when you're dealing with a so-called brother, and he says so-called brother because he wants to believe the best, but he knows there's a possibility that they may just be that, a so-called brother and not truly, genuinely converted. That's why in his second letter at the end of the book, he will write to the Corinthians, some of you need to test yourselves to see if you be of the faith. You claim you are, but maybe you need to do some careful self-examination so that you don't have a false assurance. But nonetheless, whether they are or not is not for me to decide. If they profess the right things and they say, I'm born again, and and they give a, a reasonable testimony based on the truth of Scripture, then I can only go by what they say. But in light of what they say, then I have to make a decision in terms of how I'm going to respond. So he says, I actually wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he should be an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what I have, what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? Yes, of course. But those who are on the outside, God judges, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. And so there is a biblical principle for separation from believers when they are unrepentant in terms of our fellowship with them. The extreme of this would be church discipline, where you have someone who in a very open, profound, unapologetic way is participating in sin that brings disgrace to the body of Christ, and to the testimony of the local assembly. And then church discipline is exercise. If you see your brother in sin, you reprove him. If he doesn't listen, you take two or three. If he doesn't listen, you take it to the whole church. If he doesn't listen to the testimony of the church, then he's considered as an unbeliever. He's removed from the fellowship of the church. Sometimes in our relationships, too, with other believers, um, there are times because their behavior is so detrimental, they may not be a member of your church where there's a church discipline issue that is over them because, you know, they're, they're not a member of your church and you don't concern yourself with someone who's a member of another so-called Bible-believing church. But if they're a member of your church, that's one thing. Then you take it to the elders. But if they're not, then you have to say, well, what's my responsibility towards this person? Well, you, you, you deal with them in love. You speak the truth in love. But you may say to some people, hey, listen, I've uh, I, I've tried to deal with you reasonably. 
and uh, but you're not very responsive. So our fellowship, at least at this point, is is ended. And I would like to reestablish the fellowship, but at this point, it's ended. And sometimes, you know, I I, I deal with people in my office who, who sometimes are uh, agonizing over, say, even parents uh, that are very very difficult and very destructive to them and maybe even to their grandchildren. And I'll just tell them, well, listen, you need to honor them and respect them, but you may have to have some limited parameters in terms of your involvement with them because of their unwillingness to uh, amend their behavior uh, with you and maybe with your children or your grandchildren. So sometimes, you know, tough love is exercise, and that's okay, and it doesn't mean that we're unforgiving. Now, if, if we have, and, and here's, a good, here's a good way to measure it, whether or not you've really forgiven someone. You know, sometimes you'll hear people say, well, forgive and forget. If you've really forgiven, you've forgiven and you've forgotten. That's not true. Uh, that, that's not a biblical paradigm. Listen, if someone breaks into my house and murders one of my children or my wife, I'll I'll never forget it. Now, can I forgive them? By the grace of God, I would. But would I ever forget it? Of, Of course not. You would never forget that. But a good test is the way you remember it. Do you remember that offense that someone has done towards you with a sense of disdain, hatred, bitterness, and anger? If you do, then you really haven't forgiven them. Um, and I'm not talking about a righteous anger. I, I mean a smoldering, bitter type of anger. And if that's your spirit towards them, then you really haven't forgiven them. You really haven't released them. And, and they're controlling you. They're wrecking your life in the process. Anyway, I wish I could spend some more time on that. But I do have a handout in our discovery class. And it's called Experiencing God's Love and Forgiveness. And I kind of deal with not just vertical forgiveness between us and God, but horizontal forgiveness. And it's in the Back to Basics series. And we cover it in the Discovery class. But if you go to search the scriptures and listen to the Back to Basics series, um, you might want to get that handout on experiencing God's love and forgiveness. Let's go to the next question, Rick. All right, 525-1859, toll-free, 877-924-7980, or email us, as this person has, to tdl at net. They would like to know whether the principles of the book of Proverbs apply to everyone or just to Christians. Well, there are certainly principles in God's Word that if an unbeliever applies them, he's going to experience the benefits of them. It is the law of sowing and reaping that goes into action. So, for instance, let's say a man is a moral man, but he's lost and has never received Christ as his Savior, but he's an honest man. And so he has a business that uh, reflects integrity and honesty and hard work and excellence. He's going to benefit from it. And Proverbs speaks of all those very issues. So there is the principle of sowing and reaping. Um, So there are some general principles that certainly I think could apply to a lost person as well as a saved person. But remember, Proverbs is not written to the lost. It's written to the saved. And it's telling us and instructing us how to live our lives wisely. 
And so in the first uh, nine chapters, he he gives us the reasons for wisdom. In uh, chapters 10 all the way through 24, he gives us the um, the reign of wisdom, uh, the, the, the role of wisdom in all the different aspects and fields of life. And then in the final chapters, 25 to 31, he deals with the uh, the reign of wisdom uh, in a person's life and in a body of people. So... Um, you know, there are promises and principles in Proverbs. Some things are promises. Some things are principles. Uh, for instance, when God says the righteous do not go hungry, that, that's a general promise, uh, a general principle. But there are times when God's people have been persecuted and starved to death. Uh, so, you know, you have to let Scripture interpret Scripture. And then there are some hard rock promises that are unchanging. And so context and, you know, determines everything. Um, and you have to let scripture interpret scripture. Like when he says, train up a child in the way he should go. And when he's old, he'll not depart from it. Is that a promise or is that a principle? I would say it's a promise. Some would say it's a principle. And sometimes out of failure, we make it a principle instead of a promise because we want to uh, cover over our own failure or we psychologize the verse. We say, well, train up a child in the way. And, and there was a popular Bible teacher in the seventies who went to a sister language of Hebrew, a Semitic language, Akkadian, where the word way meant something entirely different, like a, a child's psychological bent. And so if he's uh, train up a child, according to his bent, if he's musical, train him up musically. And when he's old, he'll continue in that. Or if he's, uh, you know, mathematical, then identify that bent and train him up in that way. The, the term way direct in Hebrew is uh, paralleled in contrast all the way through Proverbs between the way of righteousness and the way of a fool. And God is saying, listen, train him up in the way of righteousness. That's the way he should go. And when he's old, he'll continue in that way. He won't depart from it. And I would say that that's more than a principle, but a promise. And that when you come to the New Testament and God gives, for instance, qualifications for leaders in the church, he tells us what we are to aspire to, uh, that what an elder aspires to, other people are to aspire to. And for instance, he's have to have children who are faithful, later children who believe. When you put Titus 1 and 1 Timothy 3 together. Uh, if God said to me, Carl, to be in my will, you need to jump over this church building that you're sitting in right now. Well, that would be an impossibility because, um, you know, I don't have the ability uh, to jump over a church building. So God doesn't ask me to do something that he doesn't provide the ability and the strength in which to accomplish. And so when God tells me I can aspire to having a godly family, that's not a suggestion or that that's a that's a promise that I can claim and I can aspire to. And if it doesn't happen, God's not at fault. I, I'm at fault. I failed and uh, and I need to deal with my own failure. All right, let's go to the next question and uh, we'll see if we can answer some more here. All right, indeed. 525-1859, toll free 877-924-7980. Or you can always email us at tbl at net. And our next uh, question comes all the way from uh, India. This person is um, Daniel from Guntur Andhra Pradesh, India. And um, he writes, How to believe and have faith in the Lord heartfully, not emotionally or intellectually. They would like to know how to have true faith, not just uh, 
heart or intellectual thing. I need to ask Sam where this is in India. I don't, I don't know, but... Um, Sam? Yeah, Sam's a member of our church. Oh, okay. Yeah, and uh, he's from India and a committed believer. Um, the Bible would make a distinction between uh, an emotional experience, an intellectual experience, and a heartfelt, willful experience. Becoming a Christian is more than just emotional. It's more than just intellectual. It involves the will. Now, you can't separate the three. All three are involved, but it's possible to have had an emotional experience without being converted. It's possible to have had an intellectual experience without being converted. But true conversion involves the whole person. Uh, the intellect, the emotion, and the will. It's much like mar- marriage. When I was engaged to my wife emotionally, I said, oh, I-, I love her. I-, I need to marry this lady named Audrey McKay. I, s- I still do. I'm still emotionally involved with the woman. Um, intellectually, I thought, th- this is a good choice. I-, I need to marry this lady. But we weren't married until before God is an act of the will, we said, I do. And the same is true with conversion. You can understand the gospel intellectually. And there are people who do just that very thing. Jesus in the parable of the sower describes a farmer who goes out and he sows seed. And in the interpretation of the the parable, he tells us that, you know, the field is the world, the seed is the word of God, and the various soils represent different types of people upon which the seed falls. And he says the sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell beside the road, and it was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air ate it up. Another seed here in the second soil fell on rocky soil, and as soon as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And, of course, when he interprets the parable, he makes this statement in Luke 8 and verse 12, and these beside the road are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. These have no firm root. They believe for a while and in time of temptation fall away. So I selected this because this is a good illustration of someone who has both emotional and intellectual consent without the will. Every time you see the word believe in the Bible, context is everything. It's not always a reference to genuine conversion. Uh, The demons believe and tremble, James will write. In John chapter 8, Jesus describes a group of people, and uh, they are clearly not converted. It says in Luke 8, 30, and as he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. Um, and then he spoke to those Jews who had only, quote, believed him, but not believed in him. And he said to them, if you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine and you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. They said, well, we're Abraham's offspring and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you shall become free? And so Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you that everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. And then he goes on and he describes them that his word had no place in them. And he said, if you're Abraham's children, then do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you're seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. You're doing the deeds of your father. They said, well, we weren't born of porneia, fornication, implying that 
Uh, Jesus was the product of uh, an illicit relationship that Mary had with someone other than Joseph. Um, We have one father, even God. And Jesus said, if God were your father, you'd love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not even come down to do my own initiative, but the one who sent me. And then he says in verse 44, of these who had believed him now, you are of your father, the devil. You want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. And so he says, you're not converted, but it says they believed. Well, it wasn't true saving belief. It was intellectual only. It's like um, in Acts chapter 8 when the apostles come down to the church at Samaria and a lot of baptisms had been going on and people were getting saved and and there was a certain man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. And they all from smallest to greatest were giving attention to him. This man is what is called the great power of God. They were just, you know, absolutely mesmerized by this fella. And they were giving him attention because he had for a long time astonished them with his magic arts. He had some satanic power. But when they believed Philip, preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. And even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued on with Philip. Um, So here's a man who says he believed. Now, again, whenever you see the word believe accompanied with the preposition, in Greek it's ace, we translate it in or into, believed into Christ or in Christ. That's a mark of true, genuine conversion. But when it's just the word believed all by itself, context is everything. So the question is, are these who had, quote, just believed uh, true believers? Well, Philip clearly was not, though it said he was he had believed and he himself had been baptized because when the apostles come down and this is a rather unusual situation in that though these people were saved, they had not yet received the Holy Spirit. That's not typical, not even in the Acts. In the Acts, usually the moment you believe, you receive the Spirit of God. And by the time the epistles are written, uh, it says in Christ, you having listened to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed, you are sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. So the Bible says you hear the gospel, you believe the gospel, you're sealed by the Spirit. It's called the baptism of the Spirit. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 12 says, for we have all been baptized by one Spirit. It's an assumed fact. That's why we'll say in Romans 8 and verse 9, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not one of His. Uh, It's a mark of true, genuine conversion. But here are some people who had believed but had not yet received the Spirit. How is that possible? Well, because God, by design, waited until the apostles came down. Remember, these were Samaritans. Uh, The first seven chapters, it's all Jewish converts. The first Gentiles don't come to faith until Acts 10, Cornelius and his house. But here are some people of Samaria. And Samaritans, if you remember, were a despised breed. Gentiles didn't like them because they were half-Jewish. And Jews didn't like them because they were half Gentile. They were just kind of a despised people. And so in order to prevent two churches from unfolding, God waited until after their conversion for the apostles to come down and lay hands on them. And then they received the Spirit of God. When the apostles laid hands on them, they were saying, this is genuine. This is the real bona fide 
issue. And of course, when Philip saw the apostles laying hands on different Samaritans, they hadn't laid hands on him yet. But he's watching, and there were some outward manifestations of the Spirit, much like in Acts 2, where they spoke in a language they hadn't uh, uh, learned before. And he said, man, this is a bigger, quote-unquote, in his mind, trick, and more powerful deed than the ones I'm pulling off. And so he wanted to pay them uh, for this. And, of course, that's when Peter turns them and he says, listen, you need to repent of your wickedness. You're in the bondage of iniquity. You're in the gall of bitterness. Um, you're, you're, you're lost, man. And so here's a man who intellectually embraced the gospel, but he had not willfully. And by the way, this is not a basis for uh, the second stage experience that our Pentecostal friends uh, will use this text to say you get saved and later you have this second work of grace. Um, and neither is it a proof text as the Roman Catholics used to say, well, and when you're confirmed, the bishop comes and lays hands on you and you receive the Holy Spirit. They, they appeal to Acts 8. No, this is just a unique, special thing. And you need to read the historical books of the Bible in light of the epistles of the New Testament. Because clearly by the time the epistles are written, it's plain that everyone, the moment they believe, receive God the Holy Spirit, they are baptized by him. So you can understand the plan of salvation. And some people think because they know the plan of salvation, they know the man of salvation. You can know it in your mind, but listen, the devil knows the plan of salvation. You can have an emotional experience. Herod, the Bible says, literally the Greek text says, joyed listening to John the Baptist. He enjoyed John's preaching. He was fascinated by it, but eventually he cut off John's head. Um, So you can have an emotional experience, and some people think, oh, I went to church, and I must be born again. I got shivers up and down my spine, and I began to weep and cry, and I, I must be saved. You can have an emotional experience and not be converted. It's more than just the intellect. It's more than just the the emotions. Uh, You come with the will, with the heart. With the heart, man believes unto righteousness. And there's a true, genuine trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior. And if that's happened, then there will be some evidences of it. And so assurance of salvation is given on three levels in the New Testament. One, the finished work of Christ. He didn't die for some of my sin or most of it, but all of it. And based on the complete finished payment for sin, God makes some promises that a believer can claim. But if he has claimed those in faith and received Jesus as Lord, then there'll be a changed life. There'll be the fruit of the Spirit. That fruit manifests itself in a lot of different ways. And there will be the inner testimony of God, the Holy Spirit, where the Spirit bears witness with my spirit that I am a child of God. In my handout in the Back to Basics series called Eternal Security and Assurance of Salvation, I work through these different bases of assurance that God gives. And maybe this caller from India or the one who emailed us from India might want to get that handout. If you'll ask us for it, we can email it to you, and I think it might be really instructive to you. All right, great question. I don't think we've ever had anybody from India before, so that's a first. Indeed. Uh, But our next question comes a little closer to home. Linda from Port Royal writes, The ability to distinguish between spirits is listed as a specific spiritual gift in 1 Corinthians 12.10. Now, in 1 John 4.1, we are told to test the spirits to see if they are from God. 
Does this mean that all Christians have the spiritual gift, or are some Christians mistakenly fooled because they lack discernment? It's a great question. In fact, uh, right now in our Wednesday night series on spiritual gifts, we're defining each of the spiritual gifts. And last week, we actually looked at these two passages that Linda from Port Royal asked us about today. Um, No, there is a spiritual gift called discerning spirits or discernment of spirits. It's actually plural. And then there's the role or responsibility that all Christians share called discernment. And that's what First John is dealing with when he says beloved. It's a plural there. He's speaking to men and women alike, believers, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Why? Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. So we're called to be discerning. What is interesting, and we will cover this later on in the course on Wednesday nights, we will look at the 16 non-signed gifts of the New Testament, is what is fascinating with each of those 16 non-signed gifts, unlike the signed gifts, uh, being healing, uh, miracles, uh, tongues, and interpretation of tongues, unlike the four signed gifts, with the 16 non-signed gifts, with every single one of them, there's a parallel responsibility that every Christian shares. And so while some people have the gift of mercy, we're all called to show mercy. While some have the gift of helps or serving, as it's rendered in other English Bibles, we are all called to be servants. Some have the gift of evangelism. Every Christian is called to share his faith. Some people have the gift of discerning spirits. All are called to exercise discernment. But it is true that some Christians, as this Linda from Port Royal raises, lack discernment. And the reason they lack discernment is because they haven't grown. And so in Hebrews chapter 5, he says, um, For though by this time you, and in the South we'd say you all, in the um, English Bible, modern English, we don't have a plural you and a singular you. You do in the old English. And so sometimes if you're not certain, is that you, you, meaning you only one you, or does that mean you all? Well, if you look in the King James, we make that distinct that distinction. It's y'all in the Greek text. For this time, y'all, you Hebrew believers ought to be teachers. But you have need of someone to teach you again the elementary principles of the oracles of God. Again, there's the gift of teaching. And again, I don't decide what gift I get. God decides that. There's the office of teaching. That's something God has to call you to. So he says, let not many of you become teachers, knowing you'll incur stricter judgment. But then there's the responsibility of teaching. And it's a mark of maturity, of growing up in Jesus Christ, where you're not bound to ask every and every, question that someone asks you, well, I can't answer that. I can't answer. I can't answer it. No, there ought to be some questions you can't answer that you're sound in doctrine. That's a mark of maturity. Uh, Again, we're always growing. We're always learning, but there are some basics that every Christian should know. And that's what he's talking about here. And so he says, uh, you know, you, you should be on a stronger diet, but you've come to need milk. You've regressed solid food. He says is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. So the ability to discern between good and evil, truth from error, 
is a mark of maturity. It's a responsibility every Christian has as he grows up in Christ. But some people in the church are gifted specifically with that. Let's go to the next caller who's waiting patiently. Indeed, we do have a live caller. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Uh, good morning, Dr. Brogy. Thank you for taking my call. Sure. Uh, I was just wondering, um, have you, did you view the first episode of the Bible series Sunday night on the History Channel? And whether you did or did not, uh, have you heard anything about it? And what's your opinion on it? I haven't. I haven't seen it. Someone uh, shot a question and searched the scriptures this morning in reference to uh, that. What, what was my take on it? I haven't seen it, so I really can't comment. Um, so I don't know, but, uh, I'm sure sooner or later I'll either see it. I, I don't have cable, so I, I don't get the history channel, but, um, I'm sure sooner or later I'll see it. And, uh, sometimes I have to see it. Like there was a program that came out on ABC years ago, um, done by a commentator who has since died of cancer. He used to be the anchor for the, uh, ABC evening news and um, uh, it was just hour after hour of sheer heresy. And I hadn't seen it, but finally I said, man, i got to watch it because people are asking me so many questions. So maybe that's what will happen with this. But I haven't seen it, so I can't comment. But appreciate it. Let's go to the next question. All right, indeed. Uh, Sandy from Okatee writes, um, actually, we have David from Columbia first. He writes, my brother is a Mormon and has been for over 20 years. Uh, well, we'll get to that question in just a second. We always give preference to live callers, so let's go to them. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Oh. Lost them. Lost them. Let's go back to David from oh, Columbia. Hold on a second. Oh, I you think got it, was it line two. There All we right. go. Uh, yes, thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Rick, and um, thank you for taking my call. My nine-year-old has a question, and she was asking about the rapture. Um, I know... Some of the scripture where it says, I don't even know if this refers to the rapture, but where two will be standing there and one will be taken. Um, she wants to know, do we know that when the rapture occurs that we will be taking, taken bodily into heaven or is it just our souls? That's a great question. Uh, the passage you referenced from the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, is not in reference to the rapture. That's a reference actually to the second coming of Christ, what will happen at the second coming. In Matthew 24, he's uh, outlining what will happen during the time of the Great Tribulation period. There was one popular author in the 1970s. He wrote his several books over the course of the next decade or so. His name was Hal Lindsey. Uh, his first book was called The Late Great Planet Earth, and it sold millions of copies And because it was written on a rather... Uh, dramatic level and um, anyway he went to the same seminary I did and uh, none of his professors agreed with him in terms of some of the conclusions he came to but he popularized in that book and it's still stuck to this day nobody taught it before that one will be taken one will be left that that was a reference to the rapture and for some reason that teaching has stuck around for a long time. But he's talking about what will happen at the end of the seven-year tribulation. Some will be carried away in judgment. Others will be left here on the earth to enter the millennial reign of Christ to rule and reign with him. But the rapture is found in other passages like First Thessalonians chapter 4. He says, brothers, we don't want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep, those who have died 
that you may not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. We grieve as Christians when we lose someone we love, but we don't grieve like those who have no hope, like unbelievers. Because, he says, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and that's our confession when we are baptized, we are saying our faith is in the one who died and was raised, even so, if we believe that, even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. So if I died today, if I fell asleep in Jesus, my body would be laid in some grave, but the person inside of this body would be home with the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. For me to live as Christ, Paul will write, but to die is great gain. He said, I don't know what would be better for you Philippians to remain here in my body and serve you or to go home and be with Jesus. So the person inside of this human space suit, so to speak, goes home to be with the Lord the moment you die. But there will be some people who will be alive when Jesus comes back. So let me keep reading. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord. So there's going to be a generation of people that will not have to go through physical death, as most people do. Uh, We who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. And so he says, when Jesus comes back, the first to go up actually will be those who are in the grave. Again, absent from the body, present with the Lord. So Jesus will bring with him from heaven those who have fallen asleep. And that person that's home with Jesus will be reconnected with the body wherever it is. In some grave, lost in the ocean, burned in a fire, cremated in an oven. However it was destroyed, whatever state it is in, Jesus will raise it up. Not in its old mortality, for flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, this mortality must put on immortality. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we, if I'm alive when this happens, we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with him. And so, again, it's a great promise. Body, soul, and spirit, all in a moment's time, will be transformed. Paul puts it in these words. He says, um, brethren, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, uh, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed. Mysterion, a mystery is something that was once hidden and now has been revealed. And what was hidden in the Old Testament was not the doctrine of resurrection. That's taught. Uh, it's, it's found even in the, in the first five books. When Jesus confronted the Sadducees, he argued the, the, the doctrine of resurrection. They only believed the first five books, so he didn't go to a place like Job, where he says, I know my Redeemer lives and I shall see him, or a place like Daniel 12 that talks about uh, God's people being raised to life and unsaved people being raised to judgment. Didn't go to passages like that, but it's taught in the Old Testament. But what wasn't taught was the rapture. 
um, that there would be a time upon the earth when in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. And so in a moment's time, in the twinkling of an eye, uh, there is going to be a change that's going to take place. What a great and glorious day that will be. We'll meet our loved ones in the air. We'll be caught up with them and we'll be with the Lord forever. That's our promise as believers. And what a great promise to claim, to cling to when you've lost someone that you love that knew Jesus as Savior. If you don't, well, there's a resurrection that's awaiting you, and it's not the one you want to go to, but you don't have to if you will turn in faith to Jesus Christ today. We're out of time. Hope you have a great day. God bless you. Bye.